You are listening to the Testudo Times Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another Testudo Times podcast. I am your host, Dylan Spilko, with Testudo Times as a deputy editor. I am here with my co-host, Sam Ostry. It'll just be us on the call today, Lauren Roche. Couldn't really show up today. She had some other managing editorial duties to take care of, so it'll just be us two talking about Maryland football today. So we have a lot to talk about. It was a very eventful week for Maryland football. I had a Friday night game against the number, then number five Iowa Hawkeyes. And Sam, it didn't really go as planned for Mike Loxley's squad on Friday in College Park. No, not even close to as planned. Um, the line coming into the game was it opened at Iowa. It was favored by four points. It, they destroyed that spread. I mean, obviously, it was a highly anticipated matchup. Maryland was playing a top five team in the country. There was a ton of hype around the game. It was one of the best atmospheres I've ever seen in College Park, if not the best. Very reminiscent of two years ago. 2019 when Penn State came to town and Maryland started the season two and one and the score wasn't as bad that um that night when it was 59 to zero Penn State but it was it was ugly for sure against Iowa and we'll get into all the reasons why but it was disappointing (laughs) for the fans small steps this program is big small steps in the right direction and it wasn't it wasn't 59 zero like in Penn State uh, against Penn State in 2019 but you know as as you were saying 51 to 14 not really where you want to have it so far but no, no. yeah so i it was a great crowd great atmosphere in college park uh it seems that the the whiteouts and the blackouts those kind of games aren't really working for maryland so far um and it was basically another letdown i mean there was a lot of hype going into the game maryland was off to four and zero start for the first time since 2016 first time in five years program looks like it's going in a good direction and swept its non-conference slate and then and then they, they give out a dud. I mean, 51 to 14, 31 straight points in the second quarter. And something big to happen in that second quarter, Dante Demas obviously goes down with what looked to be a, a gruesome injury. He fumbled on a kickoff return. And at Tuesday's media, we both we, we obviously received news that he's going to be out for the rest of the 2021 season. And to say that has a negative impact on the offense would be an understatement, right? Absolutely. I mean, he is the heart and like you can say the court and souls Talia as the quarterback. But from off field perspective, on the field, I mean, it's it's it was Dante Demas. He had been terrific this year. He was obviously Talia's number one uh, number one option all year. He twenty eight receptions for five hundred and seven yards and three touchdowns. That's second in the conference in total yards and yards per game. So he had obviously been terrific all year. Number one option, garnered the most attention from the de- from the defense, even with Rakim, who's another great receiver on the outside. So it's just a brutal blow. It was we were watching it. He was taken off the stretch, and he was saying, "I'm coming back. I'm coming back." And everyone hoped he came back, but then we saw that replay, and it was just gruesome. His leg was completely twisted, and we expected that it would be very serious. And obviously, it is, and he won't be playing the rest of the season. So it really can't be understated, and we'll get more of a picture as these games play out of how much this offense is going to miss him. But I mean, he's the number one weapon. He was the number one playmaker. He was really a security blanket for Talia when he just, maybe something broke down. He knew like that was his guy. He could throw the ball to, he would make a big catch. He would make a big play. And so it's, it's a brutal loss for Maryland. Yeah. I feel like, you know, you talk about Dante being like a safety, like a safety option for Talia, but he's more than that. He's, he's so much more than that as a player. And as a receiver, I mean, he was so impactful on the field for Maryland through four games. He was averaging, I mean, even with the injury, after he went down, he ended with like 60-something yards. He's still averaging through five games over 100 yards per game. So, I mean, he'll end the season with about 507 yards, uh, 28 catches, I believe it was, and three touchdowns. So, I mean, he ends the season. He was probably Maryland's best offensive player outside of Tagovailoa. But, you know, it's it brings up the question, should those guys be on the kick returns, be on the punt returns? Because injuries are a very real thing in football. There's something that happens every single game. There's always guys that go down. Football's obviously a very violent sport. And, like, is it 
a good way to help your team win if you're putting your number one wide receiver on kickoff returns? Because, you know, I, I'd go with no. I mean, it's, it's totally not worth it. And you see the price that Maryland has to pay now for the rest of the season. I mean, it's detrimental to the team going forward. It completely hurts so many chances for the projections of this team just with the tough schedule that they have moving forward. I mean, Demas's loss is incalculable how, how bad this – how much this offense is going to suffer. So, I mean, Rakim Jarrett, I believe he's listed on the depth chart as a returner still. You know, is that something that you think is going to change in the future? Because I don't see it changing anytime soon, but I don't agree with it as a decision. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And first, I mean, obviously everyone is gutted for Demas. I mean, he was projected as a first, second round pick maybe this year going to the draft. We don't know the extent exact. We know he's out for the season. It's requiring surgery. We don't know the exact torn ligaments yet or how the timetable for recovery is. So obviously everyone just hopes that he can be fine and hopefully recover around the NFL combine, which is in March and the draft in April. And it won't affect his draft stock too much, even though I'm sure it will a little bit. But in terms of the question of who should be receiving uh, punt returns and kick returns back there, it's very valid in Maryland. We know Maryland has a long history of putting their star receivers back there because it's an advantage. Like at the same time, as much as you say it can get them hurt, it really is an advantage to gain that field position if you have your shiftiest, quickest, best playmakers back there receiving kicks and punts to, to maybe gain some extra yards and set your offense up for better field position on the drive. But at the same time, I mean, you're putting these guys in a brutal, in tough situations, and that brutality was was on display when when Demas went down. So, I mean, it's really a hard question. We know Maryland has a history of doing that. You don't really see guys doing it in the NFL. It's more of a college thing where they put their best playmakers back there. And in hindsight, of course, you say it was a bad, stupid decision because he got hurt. But I don't know. I don't know if it's going to change your attitude, really. And the thing was that earlier in the year, Demas didn't do it. I think it was only until the um, maybe Kent State game, maybe the game before that, where he started returning those kicks. It had been Tarheeb Still, uh, Rakim Jarrett. And so they put the, him back there for whatever reason. And then this happens a couple games later. I don't know if they're going to go back to their defensive backs going back there, if Rakim's going to continue back there. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. But, I, I mean, it's an interesting question. Yeah, you know, it's funny because – the, I mean, this obviously would not be coming up in conversation if he ended up not getting hurt. It would just be like, okay, Maryland's putting their stars on, on special teams, on kickoff returns, on punt returns. But now, you know, once something happens, all of a sudden the, the spotlight is shown directly on, like, who's back there. And it just happens to be Maryland's number clear number one wide receiver who goes down. So, and, and then you're putting Tarheeb still on punt returns. And I do agree that it's great to have – an athletic guy who can make plays on special teams. But at the end of the day, punt returns and kickoff returns aren't going to make or break your losses or wins most weeks. Yeah, Those aren't really the things that are going to determine whether you win or lose. It's if you have your number one guys in playing well on offense or on defense well. So it's, it's you know, there's such a gray area between whether or not to put these skill guys there. Yeah, and we would be, be naive to say that they're not having these same discussions in, in the coaching rooms. I mean, they're, when they're making that decision, they're considering, all right, what's the risk here if he does get injured, if he does go down, not just for him and his career moving forward, but the team as well. And so they're weighing that risk-reward, and obviously they made the decision that the reward outweighed the risk, and it didn't really work out that way. Maybe they regret it. Maybe they don't because they knew this was a possibility. But, I mean – it's, it's only they can answer that question, but they're certainly having these conversations. It's, it's not like these conversations just come up after the fact in the coaching, in the, in the coaching staff um, meetings. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and now we look at the injury and the impact that it's going to have on Maryland's offense as a whole moving forward. I mean, there's going to be a bunch of guys who are going to have their snaps increased because you look at the, the production that Dante had over hundred yards per game over six catches a game, you know, that production needs to be replaced. And whoever's going to replace it, it's probably going to have to be Maryland's depth receivers. Uh, Jay Sean Jones, Daryl Jones, Brian Cobbs is certainly going to see more time. And it's good that Maryland has a lot of experienced wide receivers. And you also have Marcus Fleming, who is a, a former four-star, I believe. You know, there's, there's a bunch of guys in this wide receiver room that can provide a lot of depth. And, I mean, those guys, along with Rock and Jarrett, I forgot to mention him, obviously. 
But I, they are all going to have to take a huge, huge jump in production if Maryland wants to replace it. I mean, is that is it realistic? I mean, I, I'm honestly not sure because what Dante was able to do, it was more uh, one of the he was one of the best Big Ten receivers. You're not replacing uh, Dante Dimas this season and for the foreseeable future because he he really is a superstar at the position and he is maybe the best or one of the best receivers in the Big Ten. So it's really unfortunate. But the thing that Loxley's always talked about is how great this receiver's room is, is, and he called it the best receiver's room he's ever coached before the season. It's not just because of the superstars and Dante and Rakim. It's, it's because of the depth in the room. And that depth is really going to be on display and see how great it is. And that starts with the number one guy who's Rakim right now. He's moves in to Talia's number one target. He's a five, five-star recruit, had a great year last year. He's having a very solid season so far this year. But he's going to get way more targets, going to garner more attention from the defense. But he is really talented. So he's going to be the guy that has to move into that number one role. And it's going to be, it's going to be a challenging task for him, but I'm sure he's up to it. But it's not just him. It's the guys you mentioned, Deshaun Jones, Daryl Jones. Like Brian Cobbs, who Loxley said all the time, like he can be a starter on most teams, but we're so deep. He said, Loxley says, like we're so deep at the receiver position that it makes it that it makes it difficult for him to get that many snaps. But that could increase. So it's really going to be a group effort, and and Talia is definitely going to have to share the ball, share those targets amongst all those guys, and they're going to have to step up and make plays in the absence of Demas. But the loss is is incredible, and it really can't be it can't be understated how how massive of a loss it is for, for a great, for a really prolific offense. Precisely. And, you know, I mean, and then, and then the question becomes, your number one wide receiver goes down. The next guy up is undoubtedly Rakim Jarrett to somewhat replace the, the kind of production that Dante had. But, you know, we're looking at the last two games that Rakim has played. Uh, after the Illinois game against Kent State, one catch, six yards, one touchdown. Okay. Maryland was more run heavy that game. Maybe the game script didn't really agree with, you know, uh, it didn't really line up with the production that Rock and Jarrett could have had. But then you look at the Iowa game, and you got to give a lot of credit to the Iowa defense. And Rock and Jarrett, once again, didn't really find any room. I mean, Dante found a lot of room when he was in that game early on. He had four catches for 61 yards. That's not, you know, a fluke first quarter. We expected that from Dante. But that's what made him different. He was able to find room. But Rakim, on the other hand, against Iowa, had four catches for just 11 yards and one touchdown. And that one touchdown came in the third quarter when the game was already wrapped up, gift-wrapped. Iowa was already, you know, wanting the clock to run down. The game was already over. So yep, the, yep. Question, yeah, the question now becomes, like, can Rakim be that guy? Because he is a former five-star. You do expect him to step in. But realistically – is he a guy that can average over 75 yards per game and six catches per game? Well, there's no doubt based on his talent level that he has the capability of being a number one receiver in a great offense because he was a five-star recruit and he's been very solid up until this point. Like he, he certainly has that talent level and he's going to be an NFL receiver, no doubt. But so he has had a few quiet games, but I think naturally his production is going to increase just because Talia is going to be targeting more. I mean, without Demas there, that was Talia's clear number one guy. Talia and Demas had an unbelievable connection. It was clear on the field. It was clear off the field. Talia says that was my brother. He was the only guy out there when, with Coach Loxley when Demas got injured. They had, a, they had an unbelievable connection. But now the targets are going to increase across the board, and that starts with Rakim. So I think naturally his production will go up. He can't have those quiet games where he's only catching the ball a couple times and having under 50 yards receiving because – Realistically, the offense won't be able to be that productive if that's happening. So I think he's certainly capable of it. But he, like he talked, Rakim talked about it yesterday. It's not just on him. It is going to be a team effort from the whole receiver group. And another guy is Teon Fleet Davis and the tight ends too, because those guys are going to have to step up. Teon Fleet Davis, obviously the running back, he's been a, become a good pass catcher. Um, Chig, the tight end, has become a better pass catcher, especially in the red zone. So those guys are going to have to step up too. And it's really going to be a group effort because that's how you replace. It's not one next man up mentality. It's a whole team and a whole unit needs to have that next man up mentality. Yeah, and you read my mind. I was about to ask about, you know, Maryland's tight end duo. They were actually pretty solid against Iowa considering how poorly Maryland played in general on offense. Just 157 passing yards in total, but Chigazin McConquo and Corey Deitches, they both had solid games. So, I mean, they got, they're probably going to get some of their target share pushed up moving forward. 
But, I mean, them and Teon Fleet-Davis, they, they're certainly going to get more looks in the passing game. I mean, why not? If your number and, and guy goes Dylan, down. Maybe, like, um, this, I guess I can pose this question to you, but maybe even they're going to have more of a run-pass balance, too, because Talia threw the ball a lot right. last game. Obviously, that was because they were down, but maybe Teon Fleet-Davis is clearly the number one back. Maybe they might try to go to more – a more run pass heavy offense. I mean, I know it's, it's like Loxley is interesting in a way because Maryland doesn't really have an offensive identity of, you know, pass heavy or run heavy because in the first three, two games, three games of the season, Maryland was run, run, run until you can't run anymore. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that does have to do obviously playing Howard when you're up 60 something points, it's easy to just say, okay, we're going to run it three straight times. And the run-to-pass ratio was very much uh, favored in the run game. But they, they ran the ball more against West Virginia. They came out with a win there, 30-24 to 24 on September 4th. And then against Illinois, the, the, the passing game kind of faltered again. But you know, they, had, they did run the ball, I mean, more than they did against Iowa. And that's not that hard to do, considering against Iowa, they had just 17 total rush attempts for under 100 yards. Both are season lows. Tayon Fleet-Davis didn't really get a chance to do much against Iowa, only had three carries for 20 yards. And, you know, above him, Colby McDonald led the way with five carries, 23 yards when the game was out of reach. And then Talia had four carry, four. he took the ball four times for 24 yards. So it was, I mean, obviously when you give up 31 points in the, the second quarter in the span, I don't know what it was, like eight minutes, you know, it, it's it's hard to – kind of find that balance but yeah something like that it's kind of hard to find that balance to go back to the running game but you know if Maryland does want to succeed every good team has a balanced attack there are no teams there are rarely teams in college football that are just gonna either air it out or just you know ground uh, pound it on the ground you got to have a very serviceable running game and ground game Uh, running game and ground game running game and passing game so it's it's tough it's tough for Maryland to find that and it was interesting because going to the game, we thought we, we knew Iowa had a the one of the best defenses in the country, but maybe the best secondary in the country. So you would think, all right, early they would est- try to establish the ground game. Mm-hmm. They were up seven three after the first quarter. They never really established that ground game. They kept passing the ball, and obviously, when you go down big, you have no choice but to throw the ball, which led to a bunch of Talia interceptions, which we'll get to. But the point is that he they never really established that ground game against. A, a great defense all around, but one where their specialty was their secondary. And then on the flip side, Iowa is a team that just pounded the ball, and Maryland's backbone of their defense is their secondary, but they were throwing the ball like crazy all over Maryland, and they, they were more of a pass-heavy offense than, than um, Maryland than they usually were because they usually like to run the ball. So it really was. It wasn't really what we were expecting from either side in terms of the game planning, but it worked out for one team and not so much the other So. Yeah, you got to give a lot of credit to that Iowa team. I mean, Spencer Petras had his best game of the season by far. And, I mean, it was – they just seemed to have great play calling all over the field. He went 21 for 30, three touchdowns. But if you look at, you know, Maryland's defense that game, they were just put – and they were just put in such bad positions on the field because Maryland just immediately went, okay, we're down. It was like 17 to 7. It was after Dante got hurt. They were just, okay, we're down by double digits. We got to go to a pass heavy game. And it was, it kind of seemed desperate. I don't know. It kind of seemed like they forced their own hand to go into a game where they felt like they had to catch up by throwing. And I mean, Talia said that at, the, at press. He said, look, I was playing too much of the scoreboard. I was, ma- I was making bad decisions. And that was something that we haven't seen through the first four games of the season. But, it, I mean, the play calling, it's got to start going into somewhat of question because, I mean, those picks and those uh, amazing drives that they had with the field position that they started with, Iowa did. I mean, that's what changed the game ultimately. That's what broke it open. So, I don't know. Maybe if Maryland committed to the run more when they were down 17-7 to 7, uh, because that's just like right before where all those turnovers happened, it just seemed to kind of snowball on top of each other. But yeah. it, was tough. It, it was really tough for Maryland to bounce back after looking up at the scoreboard. <laughs> you were up 7-3, and then all of a sudden you're down 24-7. Uh, I mean, the game was lost in the second quarter. Yeah, and then, I mean, a big reason why to transition into the, re- into 
the reason why they were down that big and what went wrong in that collapse of a 31 to zero second quarter in favor of Iowa, we can start with discipline issues. I mean, this team is, we've been talking all year since training camp since the end of last year, Loxley has, everyone has about this team needs to be more disciplined. And they were their most undisciplined game was by far um, on, on, on Friday night against Iowa. I mean, they had 10 penalties, five side, five, on each side of the ball for a total of 86 yards. When you're losing that yards, that many yards against a team as great as Iowa and a defense as great as Iowa, I mean, it just, it just can't happen. I remember they had three in the first half alone. It was three false starts, yeah. two on the center for Maryland, and then um, three defensive penalties, like a roughing the passer and unsportsmanlike like conduct, conduct, just things that shouldn't be happening are simply like boneheaded plays that they needed to avoid and they need to avoid going forward against top 10 teams and ranked teams. Yeah, it was, there's just that, I mentioned it before, but that snowball effect, you know, it seemed to kind of seep in. It was clearly in the offense where, like, it went from bad to worse and it ended with all those interceptions. But then on the defensive side, you know, during that run, it just seemed like Maryland couldn't get a stop when Iowa was on in Maryland's territory. And, you, I mean, you said it, 10 penalties for 86 yards against the top five team in the nation. I mean, how are, you, how are you supposed to come away with a win, a win in that one? You're not going to. It's as simple as that. And it's so interesting because, I mean, it's all Loxley has talked about since the preseason. We can't beat ourselves. We can't shoot ourselves in the foot with these penalties. But, you know, the irony is that's exactly what they're doing. That is exactly what they did against Iowa. And, and Iowa is a team that's not going to let you hang around like in Illinois or like a Kent State early on. They just completely took it to Maryland. They executed perfectly. And, man, is that program good. They are set yeah. up well on, on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, Riley Moss, I think, in that secondary, is he a, he's a stud. He's a future NFL guy. Uh, I mean, they got absolute playmakers all over the field. And they brought it to Maryland. And you have to give them a ton of credit for what they were able to do to stunt Maryland's momentum. Yeah, and that they, they certainly do have a ton of NFL guys all over that defense. But like aside from that, they're so well coached in that. Remember, we talking about how undisciplined Maryland was. It, Iowa is incredibly disciplined. I mean, they're not going to give you an advantage in in that regard. And Maryland completely gave Iowa that advantage. I mean, it's just it, the penalties are inexcusable. Like, I don't know the solutions. To it. I don't even know how you coach at this point. Like, you're continuing to preach it. What, what, what do you do about those discipline issues when it comes to penalties? Because they're not like a super young team. They have some young guys on each side of the ball, but they're not like a super young team. And some of these guys giving the penalties have been there for one, two, three years even. So, I mean, it's their, their head scratching plays. They're inexcusable. And they really, like, if they're going to ever knock off or compete against a ranked team, then that's what needs to be cleaned up first and foremost. Yeah. And I guess we can talk about Talia a little, because I don't think we specifically touched on him yet. I mean, easily, 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 far and wide, the worst game of his season, possibly of his Maryland career. 16 of 29, 157 yards, two passing touchdowns, five interceptions. I mean, that is just such a glaring number for interceptions. And then he added four rushes for 24 yards. His decision-making was all over the place. His, his throws were all over the place. And... And once again, Iowa's defense might be the best in the nation in the secondary. They were giving him a ton of different looks, but it just shows how far this Maryland team is from really competing with Big Ten's big boys. I mean, it's going to be really tough for Maryland to compete with these guys if, if uh, they keep giving out these performances. But obviously, a good portion of the blame for that game has got to go on Talia. Despite what he's done through the first four games, you got to just hope that he bounces back for an upcoming game against Ohio State because if he delivers a similar performance to that, I mean, it's you're going to get a similar scoreline when when all is said and done in Columbus. Yeah, and like obviously it was a it was a brutal game for Talia. I think he was clearly rattled. I think part of that was the Iowa's defense, but also after that when Demas went down, like that was his guy. That's his number one target. That's his best receiver. After Demas went down. It felt like, all right, who am I going to rely on here? He wasn't exactly sure. He was rattled. And it is one of the best defenses in the country. I mean, yes, Talia had been great through four games. And something that we were applauding him for was his great decision-making because he only had one interception through those first four games. And that one wasn't even really his fault. Then he comes out with a five-interception performance. 
it's it was in, inexcusable. And you're never going to beat. I don't know if you're going to beat any Big Ten opponent if you're throwing five interceptions in one game, let alone one of the best Big Ten opponents you could find. But so I think it's something he can learn from. I mean, he talked about yesterday, like he went right into the film after. And we've seen last year he had a very poor game against Northwestern in terms of turning the ball over, bounced back against Minnesota with a monster game. We'll see if he can do that and maybe lead his team to an upset this week against Ohio State. But it's certainly something he can look, look he can learn from. It was a suffocating defense. He was he was clearly rattled, not making the right reads. And I mean, we'll we'll see if he can get better from here. But he was getting Heisman praise through his first four games. That clearly is on the back burner. But We'll, we'll see we'll see what he can do the rest of the way but i mean i but i still have confidence in him that he's a very good quarterback and really one of the best in the in the big 10 and he's capable of making huge throws but the decision making needs to be cleaned up yeah i'm totally with you on that i still think he's definitely up there for the the talent level of big 10 quarterbacks when he's playing well and you know he's got a chance we're going to have a special guest coming up soon in the second part of this podcast we're going to be joining Ohio State's SB Nation website for a little interesting podcast segment previewing the Ohio State-Maryland game on Saturday that, Saturday that we will be attending. The Testudo Times crew will be there. He so will be in Columbus. We will be in Columbus. We'll be present, and that's going to be a fun one to cover live. We will get to that preview soon enough. But just going back to Talia quickly in that Iowa game, those five interceptions, I mean <laughs> – they just shot him up in the turnover list out of Big Ten quarterbacks. It was just so crazy to look at. One day he's got one pick in four games, and the next day you wake up and he's got six total picks. He's tied for the second most interceptions in the Big Ten. Yeah. So it's, it was clearly quite the turnaround for him. And the most telling thing will just be how he bounces back. I mean, like how he plays this week. Not necessarily if they win or lose, but specifically how Talia plays and how he bounces back. That'll be the most telling thing for me especially from a decision-making and turnover standpoint. You know, it's a defense that's good in Ohio State, but, I mean, their offense is, is, what, is what makes that engine go, and their, their defense isn't, isn't even close to as good as Iowa's there. Yeah. And the, the last thing I would just want to say is just big-picture takeaways. I mean, Dylan, I'm, I'm sure you have some too, but I think there was a lot of hype. Like, there was unquestionably a lot of hype going into this game, and Maryland clearly dropped the ball, but – Thing was, they were four now. They clearly made strides as a program in terms of the talent level of the recruiting and bringing into College Park, but also just in terms of, of winning. I mean, they hadn't been four and oh since 2016, and this was the first four and oh season since then. Four and oh start since then. But then because of that, there was a lot of excitement they can compete with the top of the Big Ten. Maybe they're a legitimate contender in the Big Ten. Maybe they could win eight games this year. Who knows? And they obviously dropped the ball in a huge spot. And it's it's not just that they lost the game because they weren't favored in the game. I don't think too many people expect them to win the game. It was more that they got absolutely demolished from that from the beginning of that second quarter on, and the fans couldn't stay at the game past halftime. I mean, that's when you look at two years ago against Penn State in 2019, the fans were out of there at the end of the first quarter. You would, And it's clear since that game against Penn State in 2019, Maryland has made massive strides as a program. But for all the fans that are looking in a huge – that came to the game for the first time – in maybe since that game in a huge spot, Friday night, blackout, nationally televised. Again, fans are looking, have they really made that much progress in those two years? And the question is yes, but from a perspective of recruiting and just fan support, they, they really dropped the ball in a, in a huge moment. And they're going to have a few opportunities the rest of the year to make up for that because they will play a bunch of other ranked teams, top 10 teams, including Ohio State this weekend, even though it won't be at home. But it really was disappointing to see. You know, that's an aspect that you, you brought up that point before, and that's something that I didn't really, like, consider. Because, you know, we follow the team every day. We're following what's going on with the lineup and the depth chart. And you see clear improvement, you know, best record since uh, the start of 2016. I mean, from just from the naked eye, looking at that, you say, okay, yeah, they take it strides. But then from a casual fan perspective, you're getting all the hype from this one game. Okay, Maryland football is going to play number five Iowa in College Park. It's going to be a blackout. It's, uh, you know, both teams are undefeated, 4-0. It's going to be a big showdown. And then just like 2019, you have the same scenario where these fans, you know, they're let down by the performance. And you said it, the attendance obviously dropped. I, I, on Twitter, I posted, you know, at the beginning of the game picture and a, a halftime picture, and it's like 
over 60% of the, the student section. Probably more. <laughs> probably more, probably like 70 or 80. So it's, you know, it's frustrating from just a, you know, a bird's eye view perspective of what the fans think of the program. But, you know, to take strides, you need to simply win, you know, just the, just the eye test game. If you see a score that says, you know, if it's a little closer than 51 to 14, you got other people thinking, okay, Maryland's making strides. They're getting closer to the top of, you know, competing towards the top of the conference. But when you're getting when you're giving up 51 points and scoring 14 on your own home turf, in yet another hyped blowout, you know it's just it's not a good look for the program. But they keep yeah. having these opportunities to show that they can do it, and they just can they just can't. Yeah, and I think we know both know people who that's the only game they go to all year is that Friday yeah. night blackout game, yeah. or and that was the first game maybe they'd been to since that Penn State game two years ago, which was also a Friday night blackout game, which I keep coming back to, and they. And Maryland had the chance, and they everyone left at halftime thinking, "When's basketball season?" Like that—that's what people were saying after that game. And so, I mean, it's disappointing, but hopefully they have other chances. But those people don't realize the strides they've made. They just look at those big moments, and continuously, it's—it's—they've come up short. Very true. And Maryland's going to have a few more chances for the rest of the season. May, they may not have a chance. That's probably going to be the highest ranked team they're going to play all season, assuming you know. Well, assuming Michigan or Michigan State. Penn, Penn, State, State. Penn State plays Iowa. Penn State, so yeah, Penn State. Forgot how high-ranked Penn State was. They're right next to Iowa. Uh, that's that's another great home game. And hopefully it's not going to be a blackout or whiteout because that obviously will curse them. But Mar we'll get to Maryland's next match coming up soon. But they have, you know, you look at the chances that they have in the schedule. Ohio, number seven, Ohio State on the road. And a decent, you know, they used to be decent. But Indiana at home. And then a, a top five team in Penn State, a great team in Michigan State and Michigan. So a lot of good teams still on the schedule for Maryland to make noise. But as in one of my articles today, I wrote about how uh, Maryland completely drops off after a significant loss dating back to like 2015. So, I mean, Pat, the history isn't really on Maryland's side, but they continually have these opportunities to pull off some of these bigger games instead of just faltering out the rest of the way so Maryland's have Ohio State coming up and on the next part of this podcast I mentioned it before SB Nation's Ohio State is going to join us and we're going to do a little preview sec section so we're going to transition to that right now and welcome back to the Testudo Times podcast we have a very special guest with us Matt Tamanini of Land Grant Holy Land Ohio State's SB Nation website Matt thank you so much for joining us today yeah of course I appreciate it and we have the Ohio State-Maryland matchup coming up this Saturday. The Testudo Times crew will be there. So let's preview this Ohio State team. Ohio State started 4-1. and one. They have one of the best scoring offenses in the nation. And then they start out the season beating Minnesota. And then they caught a little bit of a rut in the second week against Oregon. You know, how has Ohio State improved since falling to Oregon early in the season? What have you noticed? Well, there's been a lot. And actually, what's crazy about it is is that a lot of people saw the issues that Ohio State had against Oregon and realized that they were the same issues that Ohio State had against Minnesota the week before and for most of that weird, wonky 2020 season. And because of that, because these weren't necessarily new issues, specifically on the defense in terms of only playing one set type of coverage, a single high safety, press man coverage, not doing a lot of blitzing, not doing a lot of disguising coverages. We just assumed that when Ryan Day, the head coach after the game, said that he was going to be making substantive changes, that that was just something that coaches say after bad losses. And to be clear, it wasn't necessarily a bad loss by Ohio State. It was by seven points to a then highly ranked team. So it wasn't horrible. Just Ohio State looked really bad. Um, we didn't expect a ton of changes, but Ryan Day was true to his word and made those changes. He, not officially, but unofficially kind of demoted the defensive coordinator, Kerry Combs, who had been calling plays for the last season plus, and he installed secondary coach Matt Barnes as the new play caller. Um, that was a little rocky in the first game against Tulsa, but if you kind of paid attention to what he was doing differently uh, in terms of kind of mixing up some coverages and not playing one set thing, saw a little bit more cover two, saw some more blitzing. 
Um, even though Ohio State gave up more points than they probably would have wanted to to Tulsa, you were able to see that there was a little bit of different of a philosophy in that game. And since then, against, admittedly, one of the worst teams in college football in Akron, and then against Rutgers, who is not one of the stronger offenses in the Big Ten, the defense has looked remarkably better. Um, we'll see what happens against a, a an actually powerful offense like Maryland on Saturday. But they have made some legitimate substantive changes, both in scheme and in the defensive rotation, especially as to who is getting on the field. They've really tightened up the rotations, especially in the secondary. Ohio State has always rotated along the defensive line, and that's never going to change in a Larry Johnson coached unit. But in terms of the secondary and to a lesser degree at the linebacker's position, we are starting to see fewer guys in there for obvious, you know, there's still some rotation, um, but it's not this kind of, you know, turn style as to when people are coming in. And then on the other side of the ball, the main difference has been CJ Stroud, whether he's healthy or not. He uh, had kind of had a banged up shoulder in the in the first game against Minnesota, and it got progressively worse to the point where they sat him against Akron. He came back against Rutgers and looked like a completely different quarterback. So while he wasn't bad by any stretch of the imagination, like you said, they had one of the best offenses in most of the measurable statistical categories even before he sat down. Um, but just from the eye test, he looked like a much more confident, much more accurate, um, much more complete quarterback after he took a week off. Yeah, Matt, this is a two-part question. But first, just, I mean, you mentioned CJ Stroud. You mentioned the offense. What is it that's, that he's now, like, finding a stride? I mean, obviously, he had an amazing performance against Rutgers, 330 yards, five touchdowns against not the Rutgers team that it was a few years ago, a somewhat serviceable Rutgers opponent. So what's clicking? I mean, is, is the shoulder – I know he sat against Al Akron, as you said, but, like, is the shoulder injury not a factor anymore? What's what's clicking for him now? And the second part is that – of that is what is it about Ohio State quarterbacks that you can just plug and play? I mean, obviously they recruit the most talented guys, Dwayne Haskins, Justin Fields, now CJ Stroud. But what is it about that offense where you can just plug and play these quarterbacks? Yeah, in the first part, we really don't know anything about CJ's shoulder. Ohio State under Urban Meyer was maybe because Urban Meyer was kind of older and he didn't you know care as much and that can be applied to a lot of things in his uh, professional and personal lives apparently um, but he was very open about injuries and and talked about them gave specific diagnoses Ryan Day is the polar opposite we know nothing as Ohio State fans or media in terms of what's going on in terms of injuries many many times um, while you might hear some some rumblings of things going on at practice there'll be times when people don't we don't know anything about a guy and then he just shows up on the unavailable report three hours before the game and we have no idea why. But in terms of CJ, it I, it looked like the shoulder needed some rest and he, he wasn't doing some of the things he was early in the season where he was after throws, good throws or bad throws, really kind of, you know, trying to work that shoulder out. Um, so if, depending on how much that injury really impacted him, I think that's a big part of it. But the big difference is, I thought, from the Rutgers game was the play calling from Ryan Day. Ryan Day, the head coach, is the offensive play caller as well. Early in the season, it felt like, and this kind of leads into your second question, it felt like they were trying to plug C.J. Stroud into the Justin Field, Fields offense, where Ohio State, in the two years with Justin Fields at quarterback, um, there was not a lot of underneath passing. It was hand the ball off to a good running back, and then just throw bombs. And with Ohio State's wide receivers, that often worked. And especially because I think Justin Fields, you know, arguably, you know, in my opinion, not arguably, was the best deep ball passer in college football the last two seasons. Um, that worked really, really well. It did not work really well in the first three games for C.J. Stroud. In the game against uh, Rutgers, and perhaps it has something to do with Rutgers' scheme, and especially because Greg Schiano, the head coach of Rutgers, is the former defensive coordinator at Ohio State, um, but they went more with the Dwayne Haskins offense, which was a lot more mesh routes underneath, a lot of short, quick passes, a lot more slants, get the ball out of uh, the quarterback's hands and let the wide receivers kind of do their thing. Um, I... I hope that that's the offense that we continue to see. That's what we've kind of been calling for from actually last spring. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. But it's it was much more um, about play calling and that shoulder being healthy. And I think those two things combine to perhaps the most important to be the most important thing is, is that for the first time as the starter, C.J. Stroud looked confident. And whether that was his confidence in being able to throw a ball and uh, make that tough throw to, to a wide receiver. Um, who might not be completely open 
um, that was different. He looked like he was trusting his reads a lot more, and maybe that has something to do with the fact that he felt like his shoulder was healthy. Um, but, you know, being healthy, the play calling, the confidence, I think that those are three things that if you have those clicking, you're going to be a really good quarterback, um, especially if you're as highly recruited as C.J. Stroud is. And then in terms of, of plug and play, I mean, obviously Ohio State um, is one of the best recruiting teams in the country, but I also think it speaks really, really well about how great of a quarterback developer Ryan Day is. That's his thing. He's always been a quarterback's coach, um, whether that was in the NFL or in college, working with Chip Kelly at both levels. Um, he's just a guy who was a former college quarterback who knows how to get the most out of his quarterbacks. And that was not something that we saw under Urban Meyer. I think, uh, you know, especially after Ohio State won the national championship in the 2014 season, Urban Meyer just kind of like forgot what made him Urban Meyer and made him, you know, a Hall of Fame coach. So it's been really nice to see Ryan Day be able to not only to develop quarterbacks and other offensive personnel, but specifically quarterbacks, and to build an offense around what they do best. Um, Ryan Day came in as the offensive coordinator with JT Barrett, then went to Dwayne Haskins, then went to Justin Fields, and now with CJ Stroud. Those are four very, very different guys. Um, but he's been able to kind of build offenses around each of them that um, would allow them to do the things that they do best. So obviously recruiting is always a big deal in college football, but even more so I think it has to do with the the really fantastic coaching of, of Ryan Day and his and his staff. And Matt, we already talked about the uh, C.J. Stroud and how effective that he's been this season, but what can you tell us about Ohio State's run game because they're averaging over 219 rushing yards per game through five games so far. Is that sort of an underrated aspect of this team, or is it just as effective as the passing offense and it's just as noticed? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's just as noticed. It's more important, and I'm going to say this now, and your fans, I've kind of hinted around this in some articles, but your listeners will hear me say this first um, on a podcast. I think Travion Henderson is going to leave Ohio State as the best running back in Ohio State history, um, and at least of the 21st century. I mean, he kind of has a lot of the skills of a Maurice Claret, of Ezekiel Elliott, of J.K. Dobbins, the, the best three running backs, in my opinion, since the turn of the century. And he's got a little bit of each of them. He came in as the number one running back in the, in, in the class, so expectations were really high already for him. Um, but he's come in as a true freshman and really kind of grabbed a hold of that starting spot. And he's at the point now where he's going to just continue to be getting the bulk of those carries. He didn't really run the ball at all against Oregon. And I think that was because early in the season, they wanted to lean on guys that they had a little bit more familiarity with. Uh, despite that, he's averaging over 100 yards per game. Um, he broke the single season, or I'm sorry, the single game freshman rushing record, breaking a, a record that was set by Archie Griffin back in the late 70s, uh, mid 70s, actually. He's averaging almost nine and a half yards per carry. So I, I think what this is really about is Travion Henderson is, is really, really good and can do a little bit of everything. Um, and Ryan Day always, I mean, all offensive coaches want to talk about balance, um, but it is really something that they try to achieve um, in this offense because when you can, you know, really pin your ears back as a defense and know that they're going to throw the ball three quarters of the time or more, you can really start to get some pressure on them to have a guy who, like Trevion Henderson who is capable of breaking things at any point um, really can kind of keep a defense uh, honest and he's a lot of people expected him to be great. Um, I don't know how many people expected him to be great um, this early in the season, um, but he's got there. I mean, he's fourth in the conference in rushing plays of 10 yards or more, um, second in 20 yards or more, and leads the conference with six rushes of 30 yards or more. Um, and he's got two for 40 and two for 50. So like he can break a play and, and that just really changes the dynamic of an offense, especially when you're still trying to break in a first time starting quarterback. Man, I want to go to the defense side of the ball for Ohio State. Obviously, young Ohio State defense. What are their weaknesses? What are their strengths? I mean, what, what parts will Maryland look to exploit offensively? I, I, what, and also, can you talk about Denzel Burke? I mean, he has five, uh, six pass breakups mm -hmm. and one interception, in that, which was that pick six against Rutgers last week through five games. So, I mean, can you talk about him? And obviously you would think that he's going to draw the matchup of, of Rakeem Jarrett for, for Maryland in the absence of Don, Dante Demas. So can you just talk about him and just this Ohio State defense as a whole and how they progressed? 
Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, when you're asking about the strengths and weaknesses of Ohio State's defense, um, the answer is the same for both the strengths and the weakness weaknesses, and that's everything. Like, Ohio State's got this weird thing where um, nothing is great on their defense at this point, even the stuff that going into the season we thought it would be. Um, but things have gotten better in the worst parts, um, so nothing is horrible anymore. Um, like we thought it might be at the beginning of the season. So it's kind of leveled out there in the middle. Like I, I, I would say Ohio State's like, you know, a decent defense, but not a good one and not a horrible one. Um, and a lot of that honestly has to do with the progression of Denzel Burke. Coming into the season, Ohio State really did not have a lot of, I mean, Ohio State fans didn't have a lot of faith in the secondary. And that was put to the test in, you know, in the, I can't remember now if it was Minnesota or Oregon, but starting safety, uh, Josh Proctor went out with a season ending injury. And it was just like, well, shit, here we are again. Um, Ohio State had one of the worst passing defenses in the country last year, like literally, like I think it was 124 or 126 or something in the country. Um, But Denzel Burke stepped up in the season opener because both of the starting cornerbacks, uh, Seven Banks and Cam Brown were injured. And so they're like, all right, true freshman, highly recruited, but true freshman, you're going to get the start. And he has not only grabbed a hold of a starting spot at corner, he's grabbed on, like you said, to the number one spot at, at, at cornerback. And that's something that we aren't used to seeing as Ohio State fans because, uh, because of the history of Ohio State defensive backs, especially at the cornerback position, where it seems like every starter at Ohio State ends up getting drafted in the first round in the NFL draft. Um, you don't see a lot of young guys starting that early um, but he has just been a guy who has grown and grown each week. It hasn't necessarily been perfect. He's had his share of penalties. He's gotten burnt at times. Um, but like you said, he's he's athletic and he's getting in there and he's breaking up passes. Um, he did have that pick six against Rutgers, which was the easiest pick six that anybody is ever going to have. Um, but it still counts. And he's had a couple other where he... Um, he very well could have. He, I think he had another interception uh, against Akron that was called back because of a penalty. So he's he's really kind of surprised a lot of folks. He's athletic. He's quick. Um, he, and because he actually played wide receiver in high school, um, and the Ohio State knew that they wanted to transition him to uh, to a DB, he really kind of understands route running. He understands what wide receiver is going to do when the ball is coming so he can read their eyes, read their hands, read their body positions. And that's really proven to be um, a really big deal for him, especially because Seven Banks and Cam Brown have continued to be injured throughout the season. And while we haven't really had the same two cornerbacks start for any two games, it feels like, he's been a consistent spot, not only for the secondary, but for the whole defense that I don't think many Ohio State fans or even coaches probably anticipated heading into the season. And then looking at Ohio State from, you know, a bigger picture perspective, after Maryland, they got Indiana, Penn State, Nebraska, Purdue, Michigan State, Michigan. So a few ranked teams in there, a few solid Big Ten teams. Just overall, where do you project this Ohio State team finishing within the Big Ten East? And they, I mean, they are the odds-on favorite to win the Big Ten championship, but do you think that they can get that done? I mean, I think they can. Um, if I was, I'm certainly not going to put money on it at this point. Um, I would love to see, or I would love to answer that question with a little bit more clarity after um, October 30th when they play Penn State, um, because I, I think I would like to give them some time to really solidify all of these changes that I mentioned earlier in the defense, and I would like to see them against. Um, one of the best defensives in the country in, in Penn State. Obviously, if you ask me after Penn State, and I'll know the answer uh, as to who won that game, and that'll that'll color things a lot. But um, I think they can. I mean, they, they certainly have, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, the most talent in the conference. So if they can get some of these kinks figured out on both sides of the ball, sure, they can still win it. They can still um, win the East, win the Big Ten title, go to the go to the college football playoff, and maybe even win a game there and make it to another national championship game. But I would not be surprised if they drop another game, especially, you know, when you've got three other top 11 teams uh, in the country that are in the Big Ten East. They can certainly drop one of those games. Um, Please don't let it be against Michigan if they do. But, um, you know, I I, I think it's possible. Uh, Like I said, I don't know that I would bet on it at this point. But if they get through Maryland, then have their off week, and you know, I guess they're going to have to get it the best shot from an Indiana team who's looked shockingly bad this year. But if they can make it to Penn State without having a loss, 
Um, I would feel much more comfortable about understanding who this team is and what they're capable of after I see him against that, that Penn State squad. All right. And I guess we'll go into our favorite part of the show, uh, our score predictions. You know, our score predictions are usually – they're wonderful. They're great. They're always accurate, right? So I, I said on your podcast that I think Maryland falls 45-17. to 17, But, Matt, you had a, a closer prediction uh, along with Sam. Yeah, I don't exactly remember what it was, to be honest with you, but I think it was something in that low 40s um, range for Ohio State um, and something around the the three to four touchdown range for Maryland. I could see um, Ohio State giving up some big plays uh, on defense, um, but also I could see Ohio State, if they ever did get up by three or four touchdowns, um, maybe pulling their their foot off the gas on defense, and and even Maryland could score some points that way. I don't know that that's what I would actually anticipate. I think Maryland's going to be able to score um, and at least move the ball throughout the entire game. But if I had to put a specific number on it, because I don't remember what I said on on my show, uh, I would probably go forty five or f- yeah forty five to twenty uh, four, which I guess would put it right on the uh, on the spread there. Um, so I'll, I'll cop out and go with a push on the spread. And I have a very similar score prediction that I gave on your show. And I, well, I haven't been close to right once this season, but I think this, this seems about right. I'm going to say 45 to 27 in Ohio state's favor. So Maryland's going to compete because it's really important. They do for the fans, for everyone that has their eyes on them, but I, I don't, I think Ohio state is well ways better than them. And they're not even close to their level from a talent perspective, from a coaching perspective, so Ohio State's going to win easily, but Maryland covers the 21, 45 to 27. All right, I like Matt. You, uh, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I like it. I mean, I think that's a very logical uh, a, a logical option. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely going to be a close game. Going to be a great game on Saturday. And I guess we can close this off. Matt, you can plug in any kind of info about your website and personally. Yeah, um, you can find us at landgrantholyland.com, one of the weirder names in all of SB Nation, I admit. Um, if Especially during the game, if you want to see how Ohio State fans are reacting uh, during the game, I'll be tweeting from at landgrant33, or you can find me, uh, my personal account, at Matt. All right, Matt, thank you so much for joining us, and and thank you for you know giving your insight on Ohio State. Thanks Anytime. a lot, Matt. Yep. Thank you so much for listening to the Testudo Times podcast. We had a great time this week with SB Nation's Ohio State site and looking over the Iowa game. Next week, we'll have all of our thoughts from visiting Ohio State, and we will get to you with all the information from that game. So thank you for listening to another Testudo Times podcast, and we will record it next week.